Welcome to California Ballot Breakdown from KPFA, where we take you through the stakes of what's on your ballot, the money behind the campaigns, give everyone enough time to make their best argument, and then try to get them off their talking points. On today's special. I've had 42 bills signed into law. I'm proud to be an open democratic socialist. The world of housing policy is watching Senate District 11, where incumbent Scott Weiner is facing a left-flank challenge from Jackie Fielder. We'll speak to both candidates, but first, everything you need to know about voting in a pandemic and what everybody from the post office to the Secretary of State is doing to handle it. Stay tuned. On to our first story. Ballots have now been mailed to every registered voter in California. This will be an election unlike any other in the state's history. There are record-breaking numbers of registered voters. New election systems are phasing in, and there is a pandemic to manage. Ariel Boone has this report on what is new and how it'll work. If there is one message the press secretary for California's Secretary of State wants to get out about the election, it's this. Do not wait. If you can vote early, please vote early this year. Sam Mahood declined to spell out any scenarios of what could go wrong. He's bullish about how California runs its elections. But this year is unlike any other. Given everything with COVID, we know you know there's going to be a bigger strain on resources for everyone and on polling locations. Um, we really say November 3rd, as much as it's election day, it's really the last day to vote is how we want people to look at it this year. Here's what's different this year. First, Voter registration is way up. California now has 21 million active registered voters, a record. The Secretary of State says that's 83% of eligible adults. Here's Alameda County Registrar of Voters, Tim Dupuy. We're at almost 940,000 registered voters for Alameda County, which is is a record for us. The same goes for poll workers. We have a reserve of over 3,000 people right now for our volunteer election workers. We, we've never been in this situation, so it's just amazing the outpour of support from our community. Another thing that's new this year, California will mail every voter a ballot. In fact, California has already mailed every registered voter a ballot. Every county was required to send them by October 5th. You may have heard about backups at the post office earlier this year. So we asked the people who actually handle the mail what to expect. The mail handlers, uh, NALC letter carriers, us, the APW, and NAPS, that's the National Association of Postal Supervisors and Postmasters. All of us are participating to ensure that all election mail, mainly ballots, are processed and cleared daily. Shirley Taylor is a national business agent for the American Postal Workers Union. And every night they're going to have a clearance report, certification that all ballots are cleared. And then these, our representative of the committee, will review these reports and walk through these plants looking for problems and giving suggestions. There's more scrutiny on the Postal Service this year. In August, a federal judge in Washington state blocked moves by President Trump's postmaster general to remove mail sorting machines and bar postal workers from using overtime to finish deliveries. But Shirley Taylor says the workers are up to the task. I have to tell you that we will get those ballots out. It's in our DNA. That's our job. She would know. Shirley started working for the Postal Service in 1962. Another thing, California arranged with the post office to get all ballots delivered even if they don't have postage. So it's no stamp, no problem. 
Sam Mahood also said, even though everyone's getting mailed a ballot, this is not just a vote-by-mail election. There will be in-person voting options, and those are really critical um, for voters who might have made a mistake with their ballot and need to get a replacement, voters who need to take advantage of same-day voter registration if they miss the October 19th voter registration deadline, voters with disabilities who might need to use accessible voting machines that are available at their polling location, um, or voters who might need assistance in another language and need help from a poll worker. That might be the sticky part. In many parts of California, including the counties of Alameda, San Mateo, Santa Clara, Sonoma, Napa, and Fresno, there will be fewer polling locations. And instead, voting centers will be open at least four days before the election for early voting. In theory, they're a big step forward. You're no longer restricted to just one voting location. Any center in your county will do. Here's Alameda County Registrar Tim Dupuy. In this election, if you happen to be in Livermore and you're a resident of Alameda, you could go into a, a, an accessible vote location in that city and we'll be able to produce your city of Alameda ballots so that you can vote there. So it does remove those, those geographic restrictions. But the switch to a voting center system can be tricky. When Los Angeles did it for the primary this spring, there were long voting lines because poll workers had a hard time connecting to an online database. An executive order from Governor Newsom says counties who choose the voting center model must have one for every 10,000 voters. And big crowds can be a problem during the pandemic. Here's what Tim Dupuy says will be in place to keep COVID from spreading at Alameda County's vote centers. If they have a ballot already that we mail to them and they have the envelope, we're going to have a drive-through drop stop where they can just hand us their ballot through the window and we'll drop it into the ballot box and they'll get their I voted sticker. If they want to vote and they're willing to vote in their car, we call it curbside voting. So they'll be able to come up and they can ask for their ballot. We'll ask them to park and we'll run their ballot out to them when it's ready. Worst case, if they do have to come into the location, we have everything spread out. These locations are at least 2,500 square feet, and everybody's going to be wearing the protective equipment, the PPE that's required. We'll have all of the sanitizing that's necessary for those facilities, and we'll limit the number of people who can actually come in. So if we have to, we will queue people up safely outside, and we'll bring them in so that we don't overwhelm the inside of the facility. But we want to make sure that that's the last resort for voting. And here's what else election officials want you to know. In California, you can register for a ballot to be mailed to you until October 19th. After that, you can register and vote in person up to and including Election Day. You can already do this now, any day, at your county registrar's office. You will also be able to do this at voting centers, most of which will open four days before the election on October 31st. If you're voting by mail, you can also track your ballot on its way to you, from you, and through the counting process using a new online tool. Here's Sam Mahood again. Sign up at wheresmyballot.sos.ca.gov. And with this service, you can choose to get notifications by text message, phone call, or email about the status of your vote-by-mail ballots. You'll know when it's on the way to you, when it's been received by your county elections office, when it's been counted, and if it hasn't been counted, you'll be alerted to an issue, which you'll still have time to correct. It's important to know where your ballot goes. Because in the past decade, an average of 1.7% of ballots cast by mail in California were rejected. 
The top three reasons for ballot rejection for everybody are late, missing signature or bad signature. Mindy Romero founded and directs the Center for Inclusive Democracy at the University of Southern California. Her research has found mail-in ballot rejection disproportionately impacts voters aged 18 to 24. So young people are much more likely to get their ballot rejected. In a study of Sacramento, San Mateo, and Santa Clara counties, young voters were three times more likely to have ballots rejected. She says to make sure you sign the envelope if you're voting by mail in California and get the ballot in the mail early, no later than November 3rd. But most important, she says, is to make the decision to vote. On the election speed, I'm Ariel Boone for KPFA. Here in California, the Republican Party has ceased to be much of a factor in state politics. So a a lot of what passes and doesn't pass in Sacramento comes down to differences between Democrats. That's why we are spending some of our pre-election airtime covering Democrat-on-Democrat battles over who will be in the state capitol next year. This hour, we're talking to both candidates for Senate District 11, which is mostly in San Francisco, currently represented by Scott Weiner, who joins us now. Senator, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. We like to start these interviews as, as broadly as possible. An election's a choice. Take two minutes to tell us uh, not why you're great, but why you think you're a better choice than the person running against you. Again, thank you for covering the race. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, I think I'm the right choice because for the last four years, I have uh, worked day and night, seven days a week to represent this community, which is my community of 23 years. Uh, and I've been able to get things done. I've had 42 bills signed into law over that period of time. And these are not just minor bills. These are bills that move the ball forward in some, on some of the most uh, progressive, high priorities uh, that we have. Uh, legislation that is resulting in uh, thousands and thousands of units of affordable housing being approved more quickly and streamlined here in San Francisco, but also uh, in the East Bay. Uh, legislation to reverse mass incarceration by getting rid of the most common sentence enhancement that was keeping people in prison longer uh, than they needed to be. Uh, Legislation uh, to create the biggest investment in clean energy storage uh, in California uh, history. Um, Legislation to protect the LGBTQ community, including a bill that the governor just signed to ensure that transgender people who are incarcerated uh, can be housed according to their gender identity and and stop having trans women forcibly housed in men's facilities where they are frequently uh, victimized or legislation to protect net neutrality. Uh, So I could go on and on, uh, but I've shown that I can not just talk about big progressive issues because it's really easy to talk about big progressive issues and to say we need to do more and to tweet about it, Uh, But I've shown that I can get it done and uh, I'm able to bring along moderate Democrats because we are the the California State Senate is not just San Francisco uh, and the Bay Area. It is very, very diverse. And I've been able to work with moderate Democrats and even to get some Republicans to vote for progressive priorities. Uh, Our work is not done. And I, I I'm asking the voters to rehire me for another four years. Let's drill down on, on housing. Um, you've pushed a lot of housing bills. Uh, you've also seen a lot of your housing bills get hung up. What would be your agenda if you're back in Sacramento for the next legislative session? Yeah, well, I've actually passed multiple uh, 
uh, groundbreaking uh, housing laws. I think sometimes uh, because SB 50, which sort of sucked the oxygen out of the room, did not move forward. Uh, sometimes people, you know, may have the perception, oh, your housing work isn't moving forward. Um, I've passed two of the most consequential uh, state housing laws in recent memory. One was SB 35, which is a housing streamlining law <clears throat> that uh, provides that cities that are not meeting their housing goals uh, become expedited. So those uh, housing projects have to be approved within three to six months instead of years and years. The biggest beneficiary of SB 35 has been affordable housing. Uh, in San Francisco alone, it is expediting the approval of almost 2,000 units of affordable housing for lower income residents. Uh, in Berkeley and Oakland, uh, also uh, accelerating approval of these critical affordable housing uh, projects. And it is forcing some of the wealthiest communities in California to accept new housing. I also passed legislation, SB 828, that completely restructures how we set housing goals in California to make sure that the housing goals we set reflect our actual need. And it is forcing cities like uh, Beverly Hills or other wealthy cities or Cupertino um, to plan for and to build much more housing than they had uh, in the past. Uh, and even SB 50, which didn't pass, um, completely and permanently changed the conversation around housing uh, in terms of what do we mean when we say that we don't want to have a three and a half million home shortage and how and where do we want to put that housing? Do we want to put it near jobs and transit like SB 50 proposed? Or do we want to keep building sprawl so people have two-hour commutes and put carbon in the air or keep building housing in wildfire zones? Uh, and so as a result of SB 50, other housing bills <laughs> have been able to pass that wouldn't have been able to pass before because we were able to change the conversation. We have a lot more work to do. The legislature did not do well in housing this year. Um, a number of really good bills in both houses died due to really bad reasons, but we're going to get right back up next year. Um, I have legislation uh, to allow churches and other nonprofits to build 100% affordable housing on their excess land. It will result in a massive, massive increase in land available only for affordable housing for lower income people. Uh, legislation to make it easier for cities to upzone for more density in sustainable areas near jobs, near transit, uh, without having to go through a 10-year process uh, to get there. Uh, we have work to do. We, we have increased funding for affordable housing at the state level in the billions, uh, but we have more work uh, to do there as well. So on housing, we've made a lot of progress, not just my legislation, but my colleagues. And as chair of the Senate Housing Committee, um, I work to help my colleagues move forward good legislation. And we've made some real progress, but there is a lot more to do. You just referenced three bills that are about expediting development uh, about the production side of the housing crisis. You didn't mention tenants' rights. Do you think that's part of the same strategy? Absolutely. Um, and I have uh, been a consistent supporter in the Senate of bills to protect renters because uh, job one is to keep people stable in the housing that they have. And then in addition to that, we need to build the millions of homes that we need. Uh, because until we solve our shortage of housing, there's going to be continuing and growing pressure on tenants, which results in people being pushed out. Uh, but last year, uh, we were able to pass um, a, a statewide rent cap. You know, six, there are about 16 million 
renters in California, 40% of the population, the vast majority had very, very few protections. And we passed a law authored by Assemblymember David Chu, and I was proud to co-author it, to place a statewide rent cap and statewide just cause protections. Uh, this year- You're uh, referring the, to the anti-gouging bill. It lets rents go up by 5% plus inflation. Right. And also provides just cause eviction protection, which is yeah. the other part of the bill. But you can't just randomly- uh, evict some, someone. And then this year, I co-authored the strongest version of the COVID-19 eviction moratorium bill. Um, that bill had to be compromised because it required a two-thirds vote. Otherwise, it would not have gone into effect until January 1st. Uh, and uh, that was not going to be possible without some compromises. Uh, but I have been there over and over again, um, advocating and, 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 and signing up for uh, uh, strong tenant protections. And so that's something that is very important. But we also have to acknowledge that the root cause of our housing crisis, including the eviction crisis, is that we are short millions of homes. And that puts enormous pressure on our housing stock. And we have to relieve that pressure over time. Hold that thought for a moment, because I want to get into specifics. We put out a request for questions from your constituents. Uh, someone got in touch and said, uh, I'd love to know what both candidates think about Proposition 21 which is on the current ballot, uh, it proposes to do something you could also do as a legislature, uh, which is in large part repeal the state restrictions on the forms of rent control that city governments can enact. Um, have you taken a position on Prop 21? I've not. I don't oppose it. Um, there are parts of it uh, that I strongly support and parts uh, that I don't. Uh, so the, the part of uh, Prop 21 that I do support is getting rid of this arbitrary cutoff date. In San Francisco, it's 1979. In other cities, it might be 1995 or somewhere in between, uh, where uh, housing that's built after, before that date can be covered by the city's rent control ordinance. Housing built after that date uh, cannot be. That is incredibly arbitrary. And what Prop 21 would do in that respect is to provide a rolling 15 years, that after 15 years, uh, new construction could transition into rent control. And I think that that strikes a very good balance to make sure we create financial incentives for this these new apartments to be built, but then to provide that over time they can become rent controlled or rent stabilized. Uh, and, and so I'm, I very much support that aspect of Prop 21. Uh, there's another aspect, vacancy control, which I do not support because I think that will significantly um, undermine uh, our overall goal, goal to actually get more housing. Let me translate for our audience. Vacancy control means a form of rent control that would say not only is the rent controlled while you're living in the unit, but when you move out, the landlord can't raise the rent between tenants uh, more than they could while you're living there. Right. And the, 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 I understand the, the argument for vacancy control, um, but the, the, the challenge that it creates is right now, if you are, say, a long-term low-income tenant uh, whose rent is way below market, and if there are other tenants in the building who are newer tenants paying higher rents, their rents essentially subsidize you, and that creates more stability in your tenancy. If, if, if everyone in the building, we see this now, if you see a building where everyone is deeply below market, uh, then that creates enormous pressure to try to clear out the building. Uh, and so I, that's why I have the concern about vacancy control. It's been a consist consistent position I've held for many years. But the other piece um, of Prop 21, I do support. And so I'm not 
um, objecting to Prop 21. I'm not opposing it, uh, but that's my perspective on it. Now, to be clear, uh, Prop 21 would not impose vacancy control anywhere. It would let city governments vote to establish it if they right. wanted to. That's correct. Why shouldn't that decision be left to cities? Uh, I think when it comes to housing policies, we, we strike a balance between uh, local decision making and statewide policy. And we see that in many, many different areas not just of housing policy, but education policy and, and other policies. And there are times when we say that there's a certain policy that's that's not going to work in California and other areas where cities uh, should decide. Senator Weiner, I want to return to the, the question of housing production. It's just kind of looking around. We're, we're both from the Bay Area. It seems pretty clear that with the, the price of land, labor and materials, um, Nobody who has to turn a profit building housing is going to be building it for someone who's on disability or social security or supporting a household with a minimum wage job. It just doesn't pencil out. Like how how much of a subsidy pool for affordable housing do you think California needs? A massive subsidy pool. Um, so the like I said, we're we're short millions of homes. The long term structural. Uh, fix is to build is to do what California used to do in the early in the 60s when we were a state of about 15 million people we were building a quarter million to 330,000 homes per year we're now a state of 40 million and in recent years we've been building 80 to 100,000 units uh, so that uh, is not sustainable the math just doesn't work and we need to get back to the old-fashioned way of, of as we grow, building enough housing, and of course, doing it in a sustainable uh, way. So in the long run, uh, building a lot more housing uh, is the fundamental fix. With that said, that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and the market right now and for the foreseeable future is not producing housing that is affordable to low-income residents, even though, to be clear, 90% of low-income Californians live in market-rate housing. Um, so we need to uh, dramatically expand our subsidies uh, for uh, low-income uh, renters, uh, and that means building affordable, permanently affordable housing. It means building public housing, and I'm co-authoring uh, the repeal of Article 34 of the Constitution, which is a racist provision that makes it extremely hard for cities to build public housing. That that's something you and your challenger both agree on. So so let's let's get specific on the dollar amount. She's proposing a, a hundred billion dollar pool of money to uh, fund either acquiring market rate housing and taking it off the market, or building affordable housing from scratch. Do you have a dollar figure? Yeah, so we've approved um, billions of dollars uh, in, in new taxes and bonds and general fund allocations uh, for subsidized housing for low-income people since I've been in the Senate. And we do a right, lot but do you have a dollar figure you'd be going for if you're returned uh, well, to office? I, I, would, I, I, would, I would love to see $100 billion. My opponent's plan to pay for it um, actually doesn't come close to penciling out. She focuses, at, as she does on many things, that we're going to have tax the billionaires to pay for it. Uh, the California Teacher Association proposed a billionaire millionaire tax this year, which I uh, co-authored, um, that would generate about $7 billion a year. Uh, half of that under our constitution goes to K-12 through education and community colleges. So that leaves about $3.5 billion a year for other needs. My opponent says that uh, the bill, her billionaire tax will pay for this $100 billion trust fund, for the Green New Deal, for, for single-payer health care, 
for public transportation, since she opposes gas taxes, uh, and for other needs as well. And that's at $3.5 billion a year, a very aggressive tax that that was. Even if we double that, that's $7 billion a year to pay for a $100 billion housing trust fund and single payer and Green New Deal and public transit and so on and so forth. So I would love to see a $100 billion trust fund, uh, but my opponent's plan to pay for it doesn't pencil out. And so, and I understand why she focuses on the billionaire tax. It's very popular. I support it. I've co-authored a billionaire tax. But we have to have the hard conversations about how we pay for the things we want, which I want. I want single payer. I want a Green New Deal. I want a huge housing trust fund, and I want more public transportation. Uh, but that means talking about fundamental uh, reforms to how we do taxation in California, and that's a very hard conversation. So I would love to see, my answer is, as much money as we can put into it. And if we can get to $100 billion, that's incredible. And I want the federal government to participate as well. I want to make it easier for cities to raise revenue and bonds to pay for affordable housing because it's not just a state. Cities play a huge role and we make it way too hard with a two-thirds threshold for cities to raise taxes or pass bonds for affordable housing. That should be a simple majority. Uh, so there's a lot that we need to do. And I think if we have federal, state and local robust participation, we can significantly increase uh, into the billions and tens of billions we need. And if we can get to 100 billion, terrific. But let's also be clear, uh, uh, that $100 billion trust fund will build a few hundred, I think, two or 300,000 homes. And we're short three and a half million homes. Uh, and 90% of low-income Californians live in market-rate housing. Even if we triple our affordable housing stock, 70% of low-income Californians will still live in market-rate housing. And so we have to massively invest in subsidized housing, but we cannot avoid the reality that we need private sector participation and do to, to, as well to do what we've always done, to build a lot of housing for people to live in. I want to go through a few uh, issues your critics have raised, and these are mostly about local San Francisco politics, but this one seems very relevant to the question of funding. Um, San Francisco voters approved a, a tax on big businesses in the form of Proposition C uh, to fund homeless services and also subsidized housing for formerly homeless people. Um, $300 million, a lot of money in the city's budget for dealing with homelessness. It was something you opposed when it was on the ballot. Why? Yeah, and I wasn't the only one to uh, oppose Prop C. The mayor opposed and others opposed it as well. Um, and I knew at the time, I knew when I decided to oppose Prop C uh, that it would not be the popular thing to do. Uh, and if you want a politician who just sort of puts my finger up in the air to see where the wind is blowing and just follow it, then I'm not your person. If you want someone who's willing to take hard positions, even if it's not the popular thing to do, um, then I'm your person. Listen, I have supported an enormous number of every kind of tax conceivable. I've led tax campaigns. I've co-authored and authored. I co-authored the billionaire tax. I've introduced an estate tax twice. I've supported corporate, corporate tax increases. Um, I'm supporting almost all of the tax measures on the ballot, state and local level this year. I'm not, uh, I'm a pro-tax or a pro-smart revenue person. We need more revenues to fund our needs. Um, but uh, on this particular, and I was had no problem with spending another 
several hundred million dollars a year on homeless housing and services. I didn't object to that. Uh, and I have helped put together billions of dollars in new funding for homeless housing and services. My objection to that measure was that just a few years before uh, Prop C was proposed, we had spent two years in a broad-based process completely restructuring San Francisco's business tax and raising business taxes on the business community. And we got the business community not to oppose that. And we went to the ballot and we passed it. And then just a few years after that two-year process where we raised taxes on businesses and got them not to fight us on it, someone comes forward and proposes literally doubling business taxes on that set of larger businesses. It was not a small tax increase, as the proponents say. It was literally doubling their taxes. To me, that is not that that's not good government, where you work with businesses to say, please don't oppose the tax increase we want to impose on you. You get them to do it. It passes. And then a few years later, you're like, oh, psych, <laughs> we're now going to double your taxes. That is a message to the business community. Don't work with us. Fight us on whatever we do. And so that's why I didn't support it. And the fact that I just had to explain that thinking to you, whereas on the other side, all they had to say was tax businesses to fund homeless services. I'm never going to win that debate in the public realm. And that's why I knew it would be unpopular, but it was the right thing to do. Uh, but the voters spoke. And I've always been uh, an opponent of the two-thirds threshold. So I was very supportive of the court case deciding uh, that it would be a majority vote, which is what the, what the courts recently decided. And the voters have spoke on Prop C, and now we just need to make sure that we are making the very best use of those significant funds and that we get people off the streets and the housing. Uh, Senator Weiner, again, reading up uh, and going through some of the criticisms coming at you from the left, I was struck by how many of them uh, are not from your time in the Senate, but from your time on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Um, backing a ban on uh, homeless people using tents on sidewalks, uh, a couple of votes that were seen as pro-police. I'm curious, with the benefit of hindsight, if you regret anything or feel differently about anything you did then. No, I, well, thank you for asking that, because it is true that so many of the critiques that my opponents and other race are, are not about the work I've done or the votes I've cast in, in the Senate. I'm not running for the Board of Supervisors. I'm running for the California State Senate, uh, and I have a four-year track record in the Senate. And if you look at my track record in the Senate, I am one of the absolute most progressive lefty members in the entire Senate. I am one of the people who holds down the left flank of the entire California legislature. Um, last year, the ACLU scored every member of the legislature, zero to 100, on a broad range of progressive issues. Um, only nine members of the legislature got 100% from the ACLU. I was one of those uh, nine. Again, A from the Courage Campaign, 100% uh, every year from the California Labor Federation, 98% from the League of Conservation Voters, 94% from the Sierra Club. Uh, and if you look at my work, for example, on policing, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm a white guy who grew up in suburbia. So absolutely, I have worked hard to try to listen and learn. I don't pretend uh, to have been perfect. And over time, I have tried to listen to impacted communities and to learn and to acknowledge when I've made mistakes. And I've certainly made mistakes. But if you look at my record, say, on policing in the Senate, it has been 100% on the side of change and reform. I have butted heads with the police 
over and over and over again. Senator Weiner, I don't want to cut you off, but we are short on time. I just want to give you a chance to, to respond to the original question, which is, you know, if there's anything specific uh, from that time in your political career that, that you would like voters to know you regret now or think differently about now. Yeah, there, of course, we are, I'm, I make mistakes just like anyone else, and I try to live and learn. I think a lot of us were Which advocating vote? for police academy classes um, to try to get, in my mind, it was about getting young, diverse officers of color into the department to try to make the department more forward-looking than it had been. Uh, in retrospect, that was increasing the police budget, uh, and, uh, and that was not the right direction in terms of increasing that budget. We need to be taking funds from the police budget to fund first responder uh, functions that don't carry guns, social workers, et cetera, to respond to mental health, addiction, homeless uh, uh, situations. We don't need armed police officers uh, to do that. And so my thinking in that area has, has expanded over time. And I think we're taking, at least talking about taking better, more progressive approaches. Um, so there are some things like that where, you know, going back five, 10 years, would I have done things uh, differently? Uh, yes, absolutely. All right. Senator Scott Weiner, I want to thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Senator Scott Weiner is the incumbent state senator for District 11, which is mostly San Francisco. We will speak to his challenger, Jackie Fielder, after a quick break. A quick reminder that you can find all our candidate interviews and ballot initiative debates if you just go to kpfa.org and search for California Ballot Breakdown. You can use that same page to find subscribe links for most podcast apps. You just heard from San Francisco Senator Scott Weiner. Now on to his challenger, running an insurgent campaign from the left flank, Jackie Fielder. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I like to start with the broadest possible question. Um, elections are a choice. Take two minutes to tell us why you think, not just that you're a good person, but that you're a better choice for San Francisco voters than the senator they already have. Yeah, so I'm running for state senate to bring about fundamental change from the bottom up. You know, I announced my candidacy for this race in late November, but my journey to this point started several years ago. In December of 2016, I left the Bay Area and traveled to join my Lakota relatives at Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. The pipeline company bulldozed our sacred sites, sent German shepherds on peaceful protesters, and deployed water cannons and flashbang grenades on women, children, and the elderly. So when I left Standing Rock, I had to question what kind of economic system would unleash this kind of violence on peaceful people. So I followed the money from North Dakota all the way back to San Francisco. And when I returned, I immediately began organizing to create a public bank. The goal is to divest our billions of tax dollars from Wall Street banks and reinvest it in affordable housing, small businesses, renewable energy, and public infrastructure. Uh, we successfully passed public bank bill AB857 in Sacramento last year, and now we're working on a state bank in the hopes of democratizing the fifth largest economy in the world. And that's what my campaign is about, fundamentally changing our economy to work for everyday people, not just big corporations and the wealthy. You know, we have a Democratic supermajority in Sacramento, and they cut 
funding for public college students, public employees, working class families, and small businesses, but didn't pass a millionaire's or even a billionaire's tax. I think that these changing times call for new leaders. I'm proud to be an open democratic socialist, queer woman of color, running for real rent and mortgage cancellation, an indigenous wildfire task force, expanded public school funding, a Green New Deal for California, single-payer health care, saving public transportation, rerouting funding from the police to our communities, and taxing the wealthy. And I'm the only candidate in this race to be 100% independent from real estate interests, charter school advocates, law enforcement unions, billionaires, and fossil fuel companies. So, you know, we, we, we just spoke to the incumbent you're challenging. He said he's for a lot of the same things. Where do you see the specific contrast? What, what are the laws you would be pushing that Scott Weiner is not? Yeah, so, you know, one of the biggest contrasts is that, again, I took a pledge to reject money from big corporations, real estate developers, charter school advocates, billionaires, and police unions. I am 100% independent, and I always will be, but the senator has benefited from millions of dollars from all of these special interests. Right, and right but my question my question's about policies. Like what, what is a bill that would come out of Jackie Fielder's office that would not come out of Scott Weiner's office? Yeah. So a measure to hopefully cancel rent and cancel mortgages, whether that's a mix of uh, making sure that banks pay their fair share, whether that's the state uh, growing the pie for revenue to provide real rent relief. You know, I, I was on different sides of for example, Prop H here in San Francisco, which was a dangerous use of force policy that my opponent was a leading supporter on alongside the San Francisco Republican Party, the San Francisco Police Officers Association. I would introduce legislation uh, to re reintroduce single-payer health care because, again, in this Democratic supermajority, not one elected official reintroduced it at a time when millions of people lost their insurance. Uh, secondly, you know, expanding funding for public schools. We need to pass Prop 15 to reform Prop 13, but that will really only get us to where we needed to be before this pandemic. As well, reintroducing a real eviction moratorium because there are thousands of people who are currently being evicted from their homes in California who were not protected in the bill uh, that was a compromise between the governor and the state legislature. Um, I support a universal right to counsel for anyone facing eviction. I support, you know, expanded funding for affordable housing. Um, I really want to be able to roll back the cost of Hawkins and Ellis Acts to provide tenant protections and mechanisms to actually enforce tenant protections like a landlord licensing system or a, a rental registry. Um, you know, I support uh, Prop 21 to expand rent control and in here in San Francisco, Prop I to tax big real estate for emergency rent relief. Great. Uh, you just addressed housing in like three different ways. So so let's drill down on that. Affordable housing. Uh, walk us through uh, how much you would want to get built and where the money would come from. Yeah. So my plan is a radically different approach to the California housing crisis. I'm endorsed by the San Francisco Tenants Union, Affordable Housing Alliance, and the Community Tenants Association. Uh, again, we need to provide uh canceling rent and mortgages for people facing eviction and foreclosure who have been affected by the pandemic and are now unemployed. Uh, we need a $100 billion California housing emergency fund to take 200,000 units off the speculative market entirely and build 100,000 new units of social housing and also rehabilitate the existing stock of public housing. Uh, we need to expand rent control and tenant protections, a vacancy tax to open up homes at lower prices, uh, an anti-displacement act to prevent gentrification and reverse 
forced displacement, and of course, uh, eliminating exclusionary zoning in wealthy enclaves. You know, my plan is to keep people in their homes during the pandemic, while also having a balance of that and building affordable housing. But most importantly, when it comes to building affordable housing, prioritizing the needs of our communities before the profits of real estate developers. You know, you've uh, dropped around cancellation a few times, and I, I think this is uh, an area where where the slogan does not necessarily uh, correlate to the actual policies. What does rent cancellation actually mean as you would propose it? Yeah. So again, it can be a mix of banks, the state government, and landlords shouldering the, bur- the burdens. Um, when we talk about the state not being able to cancel rent or mortgages or require banks to go along, that's just not true. The state legislature has the power of the charter, uh, the charter you know, being dished out by the Department of Business Oversight. It's where any bank or credit union or in the future, a public bank goes to get their charter approved and say, you know, in 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 New York, Governor Cuomo said, if you want to do business here in New York as a bank, you have to give mortgage borrowers forbearance of at least 90 days. So California has the power to do that same uh, remedy for homeowners who were left completely out of this latest bill that was a compromise between the governor and the legislature. And I would also bring that issue back because I think that uh, we're not paying attention to small homeowners facing foreclosure. Um, but again, it has to be a mix of, of sharing the burden. The counter from landlords we've interviewed is if you cancel the rent they are owed and they cannot keep up with their mortgages, uh, you will go from having a lot of small landlords to a few private equity firms owning an even greater share of California's housing stock. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, the last thing that I want is for small homeowners to get eaten up by the bigger fish in private equity and Wall Street banks. And again, we need to provide real relief for renters and small homeowners. Um, And again, it has to be a mix of relief so that um, renters are able to stay in their homes and small homeowners are able to keep their properties. That will require standing up to the banks, who were the only ones, aside from the real estate lobby, to walk away from this compromise satisfied in September. And that's going to take someone who is 100% independent of both of these interests. Let's talk about the the housing production side of the equation. Uh, You referenced the the $100 billion fund you're proposing um, to pay for affordable housing. That pays for about 300,000 new housing units over 10 years. 100,000 new units, 200,000 to stabilize their affordability. You know, the estimates we've seen, um, and and this is the number the governor is working with, even if he doesn't seem to be doing much to work toward it, is that uh, over that time period, California would need somewhere between three and four million new housing units total just to catch up with growth. How many more would you see getting built and, and through what mechanism? Yeah, it needs to be a mix of zoning, of financing, and of approval. You know, there's three elements to to housing, which are all of those. You know, I support fast-tracking 100% affordable housing, especially when it comes to job centers and transit hubs. I support rezoning affluent enclaves to allow for greater density. But where's the funding going to come from? The financing. In an economic downturn, Wall Street doesn't even want to build luxury apartments here in San Francisco, let alone housing for low-income and moderate-income people. Uh, If we continue to let 
just any housing we build, it's going to be dictated by the real estate developers who want to maximize their profits. And that housing never has prioritized homes for low-income or moderate-income people. It's actually those people who continuously are pawns in this in this larger scheme who get the last housing, uh, you know, get displaced to um, places like Antioch all the way from San Francisco. This is the time to push for massive investments in housing from the public sector and hopefully in the future public banks to ensure that all Californians have access to affordable housing, not just the wealthy. Uh, so it has to be a mix of rezoning, of fast-tracking housing, and of financing. Uh, so your opponent, Scott Weiner, he's, um, he's passed and proposed a lot of housing bills. We talked about a bunch of them during his interview. It, he particularly called attention to SB 35, which it, it strikes me as doing something uh, similar to what you're talking about in, in practice. Uh, what that bill has done is streamlined approvals for a, a lot of affordable housing developments. Like what, which of the things that, that he's done, do you agree with and where do you see the difference? Yeah. So again, we agree that we need to build more housing, uh, but we disagree when his legislation increases displacement, gentrification right here in the district. Um, you know, the affordability requirements of SB 35 were obliterated last year so that from here on out, real estate developers don't actually have to build as much low-income housing under SB 35. And as well, he spent a lot of this past legislative session attempting to ensure that real estate developers can continue invoking SB 35 to, as they did in, uh, in the East Bay, bulldoze sacred sites of the indigenous people here against and against their wishes. It's really just another real estate developer giveaway. Um, so for me, it's about absolutely making sure that we can and we force the cities who don't want to build housing to do that. But it also means making sure that places like the Mission and the Bayview, whose problem isn't that they're not uh, building hou enough housing only, it's that they're not building enough housing for the people who live there, the thousands of Black, Latinx, uh, Asian, and other working class people who have been displaced from there over generations. You know, in truth, California has never been able to meet our affordable housing requirements. And I think that if we want to make sure that working class people, low income, modern income people are housed, who are also facing, um, you know, very scary financial situations, we need to actually make that a public mandate. And that requires the state government stepping in to say, here, we need, you know, 100% affordable housing. And when we say affordable, I don't mean affordable for people on six-figure incomes. I mean, people who are risking their lives working essential jobs. Just to clarify, the, the sacred site you were talking about, is that the Berkeley Shell Mound? Correct. So as I understand it, um, that project applied for SB 35 approval. It got rejected. They went to court. They lost in court. Uh, no, nothing's been bulldozed there. And as things stand, nothing will be under SB 35. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, we need to make sure that, you know, communities who are, who are, you know, marginalized communities like California tribes, uh, like low-income working class districts have that ability to um, have their rights and their needs met. Um, and that's that's a, a, something that I would continue to take over in the state Senate. Jackie Fielder, um, I guess uh, the question I want to get into is something you kind of waved at the start of your answer, which is you talked about uh, prior housing legislation accelerating gentrification and displacement. Like what, what specifically do you think has been 
bad that is the kind of thing you wouldn't vote for? Yeah, I mean, SB 50, as it was written, um, had a lot of concerns from tenants' rights groups, from affordable housing groups. Uh, I oppose it as it was written. You know, he, my opponent likes to say that Republicans killed SB 50, but we have a Democratic supermajority. He really needed the support of those groups, especially right here in District 11. Uh, but he didn't have that because they had very valid concerns around the ability of the, tem- the tenant protections uh, and rent controlled provisions in there to be enforced. And same goes for the sensitive communities, which is a uh, last-minute concession to the communities I'm talking about who have faced displacement and gentrification, um, who who didn't have really any ability to draw those boundaries. And so we need to continue to build this coalition, I believe, again, in building more housing and having the ability to do that. But it has to be a balance, uh, and we need everyone on board, including tenants' rights groups up and down the state. SB 50, I'm, I'm going to translate for everyone who's not a, a total Sacramento wonk. Uh, this, this was a proposal to kind of across the state uh, zone for more housing. How that broke down in specific areas was different uh, based on proximity to transit and number of people in the county. We, we can't get lost in the details. I guess my question is, you, you talked about um, upzoning wealthy enclaves being part of your housing agenda. Like in practice, what would legislation you backed do differently from what Scott Weiner has proposed? It would go after the most exclusionary enclaves in our state first. Um, you know, I don't I don't think I know anyone in the tenants rights movement or affordable housing groups that is against building or housing. Uh, I think that we have an opportunity to to do that. And I would just be more laser focused about it and then see how we can expand that. So like, OK, Atherton's getting up zoned. Um, what about in San Francisco? Like what's a what's a wealthy enough neighborhood to qualify for up zoning? Yeah, I mean, let's talk about St. Francis Wood. Let's talk about um, the marina. Uh, there are so many places in San Francisco. And by the way, my opponent is backing a candidate in that district that represents St. Francis Wood, who has come out in support of single family zoning. So I don't know if that means that the senator believes in density only for working class communities or or not. But for me, it's about going after the, the most exclusionary enclaves first. I spent a lot of time uh, pressing your opponent on his record. Uh, you obviously don't have a, a legislative record in office for me to press you on. So I want to take it in a slightly different direction and ask you about experience. You haven't been in public office. Why should voters in San Francisco think you'll have like the actual chops to get things passed that you're campaigning on? Yeah. And this question I'm, I'm used to, especially as a young woman of color. Um, but that, and I've been told, you know, that I can't do things my whole life. Uh, that that hasn't worked out when it comes to public banking and being able to pass both local and statewide legislation. There are plenty of elected officials with years of experience who have entrusted their endorsements to myself. You know, supervisors Matt Haney, Hillary Ronan, Dean Preston, Gordon Marr, as well as a number of uh, other elected officials and, and past state senate, uh, sorry, uh, state assembly. Uh, Tom Amiano, I'm honored to have the support, and former Mayor Art Agnos. Uh, plenty of affordable housing groups and almost a dozen labor unions, including the California Teachers Association, they know what it's like in Sacramento, where real estate, charter schools, 
every single private interest you can think of has their lobbyists um, making the rounds in Sacramento every single day. And the majority of Californians are, are not effectively represented. So they have entrusted in this very scary time uh, my platform to be able to deliver for public schools, to deliver for working people, to deliver for unemployed people, um, for educators and students and and people across this district. So I I mean, there are plenty of, of experience campaign and understand that it's it's not just about one person. It's about who someone is willing to work with. And it's clear I'm willing to work with tenants rights groups. Okay, got to jump in here with a quick technical explanation. Uh, We had a computer crash, wiped out the final six minutes of my conversation with Jackie Fielder. We realized that it happened right afterwards uh, and went back to to re-record answers to roughly the same questions as the original. Here we go. Jackie Fielder, the the recording got cut off just as you were saying. Uh, Experience is not just a question of uh, what you do, but who you will work with when you get into office. And and I wanted to bring that out to a bigger picture question about your theory of change. Uh, you're an activist. You're an organizer. Uh, when we spoke just a couple minutes ago, you you conceded that uh, running for an incumbent state senator's seat is a long shot. What do you want the organizing going into your campaign to accomplish beyond getting you in office? Yes, so uh, I'm proud to have the support of elected officials who have much more experience in elected office than I do, including supervisors Hillary Ronan, uh, Gordon Marr, Dean Preston, Matt Haney, the chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party, David Campos, former Mayor Art Agnos, former Assembly Member Tom Amiano. And, you know, I'm proud to have raised more than $600,000 from 3,500 individual grassroots contributors. Uh, you know, our campaign is 100% independent of, of special interests and corporations. And this is about not just any one person, but really a movement. And as far as getting things done, this is a Democratic supermajority. Uh, if the Democratic Party is is really the party of, of working people, um, the majority of Californians need to be effectively represented. Um, we need to, to be able to, you know, absolutely work across party lines when we have to. But at the same time, if I have to elect the votes myself to get stuff done, I'm happy to do that. Um, We've had more than a thousand people volunteer with us even during this pandemic and the wildfires. Um, And I'm really proud of what we've been able to to do in the 11 months that this campaign has been alive. From the very beginning, this was a long shot and I'm under no illusions that that it it still is, but we've created so much momentum and I would proud to be take this movement uh, to Sacramento. Uh, Jackie Fielder, I appreciate you answering in a fashion that is to the point. Uh, It has left us with a couple more minutes than I have questions. In the interest of ensuring that that you get the same amount of airtime as your opponent, I want to return to that question of single-payer health care because you you drew this as a contrast. Uh, You're both for it, but you said you'd carry a bill on it, which no one in the legislature Uh, has done for the past couple sessions. And I think, in fairness, watching this from the sidelines, if I asked anyone why not, uh, they would say the only plausible scenario for funding single-payer health care in California would depend on permission from the federal government to repurpose the streams of money that currently go through Medi-Cal and the VA and so forth. And that's just not happening right now. So what's the point? Um, is, Is there a point or is it just symbolic? 
Yeah, I think that it is a point, and I'm 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 serious about this as as anyone who is concerned for the interests of private healthcare companies uh, mm. trying to sell us back our own human right to healthcare. I think there's this uh, phenomenon in politics where state officials you know, toss the football to federal officials. But as we know, the federal government is not coming to our aid, even even to give people extended unemployment checks uh, or any sense of, of help. Um, and, and they won't even revisit that issue, it seems, until after the election. Uh, so I don't think federal help is coming. And here in California, we have one of the largest numbers of billionaires in the whole country. We have more than 150 billionaires who have grown their wealth just in this pandemic alone since March, have grown their wealth by more than $700 billion. And, you know, that's that's on the backs of their employees who are risking their lives to put food on the table for their families. Um, these are windfall profits. And I don't think we have the excuse anymore, even if we did before the pandemic, I don't think we have the excuse of not having enough resources. Now we have the resources. We just need leaders with the courage to make sure that the wealthiest interests in the state are paying their fair share. All right, Jackie Fielder, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for redoing the part of our interview that was obliterated. Thank you so much. Not a problem. Jackie Fielder is challenging Senator Scott Weiner to represent District 11. That is mostly San Francisco. That does it for our first California ballot breakdown. After Supreme Court confirmation hearings are done, we will be doing most of this coverage live in the 8 a.m. hour on Upfront. You can also subscribe to our elections coverage as a podcast. Just search for California Ballot Breakdown on KPFA's website and hit the subscribe button at the top that corresponds to the podcast app that you use. A big thanks to Corinne Smith, who produces these segments. My name is Brian edwards Teekert. Remember, in California, your vote has even more impact down the ballot than it does at the top.